Well, hello everyone and welcome to this webinar on qualifying and paying independent contractors and temporary employees. Uh, this is an important topic for people in the finance role. Oftentimes they, rather than HR, are really the, the first points of contact and the ones that have to manage and keep track of the hours spent, et cetera, to make sure that everything's in place. So this is why we wanted to be sure that finance professionals were really prepared to understand and grapple with these issues and be able to work effectively with their human resources professionals, uh, colleagues in their organizations to address these topics effectively. This is the 20th year of the CSMFO coaching program. It's a member benefit. It's uh, guided by the Career Development Committee, uh, chaired by Laura Nomura, and a, a cast of about a dozen volunteers that identify topics and presenters like this uh, to be a benefit uh, to you in the profession. So we appreciate their, their work in guiding this important project. Today's session is really taking a look at, at some important topics of, you know, what are the tests for independent contractor status? That's a key item. What are the recent court decisions? That's what really prompted the timeliness of this session is there, the courts are active, especially in California, around this topic. Wanted to be sure that you were prepared to uh, deal with those elements. And then uh, to know what the standards are from CalPERS and others in applying those. And how can you mitigate the risks for your agency? Those are all things that are, are important things for finance professionals to be on top of and to address effectively. We're very fortunate to have uh, two superb presenters on this topic. Uh, Daphne Anate is a partner at Burke, Williams & Sorensen. Uh, she has uh, been uh, the, co the vice chair of the firm's labor and employment practices group. She represents a wide range of California cities on their labor negotiations and other employment issues. Uh, she has her doctorate in uh, Juris Law from uh, Magna Cum Laude from the Southwestern Law School. And we really want to thank uh, Daphne. You know, we rescheduled this because uh, Daphne had a mandatory evacuation from Malibu back in November uh, because of the fires there. Fortunately, uh, Daphne's home and uh, belongings and all are, and family are secure, and, uh, but she's obviously done a lot to catch up, and we really appreciate her taking the time to give this uh, webinar a priority in her schedule. Um, we also have uh, Deborah Gill, uh, who's the Director of uh, Human Resources and Labor Relations at Pleasanton, California. She has over 20 years of human resource experience, uh, really focused on these kinds of topics. She's the president of the Employee Relations Department for the League of California Cities and a board member of CalPELRA, uh, one of the key groups of, uh, that is working on these topics. So uh, we're pleased to have uh, such talent here today. We also, uh, I also want to uh, thank our whole effort of, of putting together the materials for you. If you're not finding the materials, you can just click on them on the handout section of uh, GoToWebinar and they'll be available with a specific link after today's webinar and we'll be sharing that with you. So I'm Don Marisk, I'm the uh, Master Certified Coach and Director of the CSMFO Coaching Program and pleased to uh, develop and produce these sessions for you. So we're gonna to go to a polling question here. We have a number of them in the course of the time but we always like to encourage uh, with our first polling question, uh, finding out you know how many folks are in our audience uh, and we do this for a number of reasons. We really believe uh, that it's uh, critically valuable uh, to have a team approach to these core issues. 
because it's uh, something that if you have more than one person in your office understanding it, you're able to really geometrically increase the understanding and, and uh, context for, for what's needed to be successful. So uh, welcome everybody, whether you're here on your own or you're here with a group. Uh, we're hopeful that you'll be getting a lot out of it, and please ask your questions using the question function. Just type them in. I'll be covering them at uh, relevant points in the discussion today so that uh, we can get to you as many answers as you'd like to the questions that you may have. We'll have each polling question open for a minute, uh, so please uh, respond as promptly as you can, and we'll be moving along the discussion on this topic in just a moment. Okay, let's take a look. Um, I see that we've got uh, about two-thirds of you there on your own, and the other third in groups of varying uh, sizes, including some that are upwards of um, six to ten. So thank you all for joining us today. Glad that you're here, and uh, we're going to make this as valuable to you as possible. So let me just move forward with the presentation. I'm turning over the uh, controls to you, Daphne, but I'm here uh, for you throughout. Uh, so this should be uh, working for you. Let me just cover one other item here. Okay. So there we are. All right. Good morning, everybody. Really pleased to be here with Deborah and Don to talk to you about a topic that I have I've uh, been working on for probably two decades at this point, and honestly, the question of the use of independent contractors, uh, it, it's been going, it goes through cycles, and usually uh, an important decision comes out, and when that decision comes out, it returns the focus um, to the issue of independent contractors. So years ago, I worked on a case involving the Metropolitan Water District called, uh, known as the Cargill case. And, and that case was triggered because there had been uh, a case in federal court involving Microsoft. And so the Microsoft workers were successful in getting some benefits for themselves. Uh, that in turn triggered the interest of some workers who had provided services to Metropolitan Water District. Uh, and that case ended up in a, in a Supreme Court decision that's been very important in terms of discussing what the standard is for classifying independent contractors in California. So why has the focus returned to this issue again? Uh, well, that is because of the Dynamex decision that came out earlier this year. And so uh, it does provide a good opportunity to review with all of you this general question of classification of people providing services to your organization. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the Dynamex decision and the various tests that came out and specifically focus on what impact, if any, does that decision have for the, the public employer in California. Uh, and from my perspective, most of the risk is going to result from the fact that Dynamex puts the issue of classification back on everybody's minds. And uh, given that so many of California agencies are struggling with succession planning and trying to keep uh, in-house services ongoing, um, there are some issues that we're going to discuss, specifically the use of retirees, because that is probably the area that will present the biggest risk 
practical risk uh, to your agency at this point. And so we'll discuss, uh, give, give some ideas about how to mitigate those risks. So classification, why does it matter? Well, it matters for a lot of different reasons, but specifically uh, when you're talking about making sure you have an individual who's providing services to your organization classified properly, um, there are many legal requirements for how you do that. And failure to classify a service provider properly is going to result in litigation, uh, claims for misclassification. Uh, those, those lawsuits cover the whole gamut in terms of the types of uh, benefits that employees may seek, everything from uh, you know, basic compensation to pension uh, to reclassification in terms of their positions. The issue of classification also obviously has a, a big role on the labor relations front and uh, the unions are usually on the forefront of making sure that you're doing it right because uh, the unions want their members to do as much of the work as possible. So a number of times when we've dealt with these issues, they've come up in the context of unfair labor practice charges where unions are claiming that the agency uh, is uh, improperly contracting out services. Um, those issues have also played out in the courts, and we've had a number of cases litigated in that regard too, especially uh, with police and fire when, when they weren't covered, when PERB, uh, they weren't covered under PERB. You're talking about <clears throat> contracting out union union work, unit work, union, right? Exactly. That, that ends up in our office quite a bit. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, you do get you do get a good uh, insight sometimes, a heads up from from the unions. Uh, but in terms of the the harsh reality for finance people, uh, it hits the bottom line hard. Uh, there are serious penalties for misclassifying workers as independent contractors when they really should have been classified as employees. And those penalties uh, come from the IRS, they come from PERS, uh, there's penalties available under the labor code, and like I said, uh, damages arising from civil claims. Okay, we're going to go to a polling question now because we're interested in uh, the composition of our audience here and our ability to be able to really target this to the kinds of questions and array of interests that might be represented in today's discussion. So uh, if you're there with a group, click off as many different uh, areas as are relevant in, in your attendees so we can see you know, who's at hand here. Um, and this actually, this checklist is an opportunity to reinforce the importance of how each of these different areas needs to be involved in managing this effectively. I'm wondering if, Deborah, you might just comment a little bit on your experience from Pleasanton, uh, how you coordinate with finance uh, in addressing these topics in your agency. So I, I actually deciding who's an independent contractor and who's a temp employee usually is in our office, the HR office, and so our finance department relies on us to be um, to be uh, applying some of the tests that Daphne's going to talk about uh, accurately. One of the challenges we have is it goes all the way to the department that's actually um, hiring the employee because the bigger the organization, a little bit further away you are from it. We're a small to medium-sized organization. 
Um, and I would imagine this is a, a big uh, challenge for some of the bigger agencies because you don't always necessarily know what's happening out in the field. Um, and so you have to constantly be engaged in dialogue. So for us, it, the determination lands with HR, but we certainly are all auditing each other and find, our finance department does a great job of red flagging something they think we may have missed. Okay. And as we can see from the polling results, we have a good mix of, of representation from the different areas that are involved in handling this important topic. So we're glad that all of you have joined us today and we've got these different points of view. See, there's even a particular emphasis here amongst the people that are tracking the accounting and payrolling of these particular responsibilities. So it'll be helpful for our presenters to be identifying the important roles that those people play in tracking the hours and tracking things that, that are critical to making sure that the appropriate status of these uh, individuals is retained. Okay, Let, let's go back to our presentation here and carry forward. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to see we have a, a good cross-section of, of people who are involved in, in making these determinations. So, so the prompt for the presentation today uh, is the Dynamex decision that the California Supreme Court uh, issued earlier this year. And I think it's helpful to just get a little bit of information about what the case is about because you probably all hear about it and you hear reference to it. So uh, the Dynamex case arose from a situation involving a company that was a, a packament, package and document delivery operation. And Dynamex uh, delivered packages and documents nationwide. Uh, and the company has been around for, for a number of years. And for, for many years, uh, the company classified all of its uh, truck drivers as employees. Uh, well, when the company started experiencing some financial difficulties, uh, they undertook a process of restructuring the employment relationships with all of its truckers and specifically uh, reclassified them all as independent contractors. And so the truckers were considered as uh, employees, uh, as independent contractors you know, owning their own truck and having a relationship with, with the trucking company. So needless to say, a couple of those truckers uh, we're not happy with that reorganization and rearrangement. And so a class action lawsuit was filed where the truckers argued that Dynamex had misclassified uh, them as independent contractors. So the, the, the case raised a number of issues because uh, the truckers, um, their specific uh, wage issues are governed by a document known as a wage order. And there's a specific wage order that governs the terms and conditions uh, of their work under the California Labor Code. And so most of their claims were brought under this particular statutory scheme involving the wage orders. Uh, they also brought claims that the misclassification was an unfair business practice and, um, and some, other, some other claims. The reason why I mention the issue of the wage order is because because of that claim, the Supreme Court had to decide um, what standard applied to determining whether or not they were uh, independent contractors or employees. And that makes 
a big difference oftentimes in terms of what the outcome will be. So uh, there are a number of different tests and I've just uh, indicated on this slide you know, the, the common law control test, which has been the traditional test, uh, the suffer or permit test, which is one that's been used in the context of wage orders, and then how the Supreme Court decided to, to address the issue overall. Uh, so to give everyone um, a common footing in terms of what we're talking about here, the common law control test, that is the basic test that most uh, agencies use to make these determinations about who's an employee or independent contractor. Uh, I referenced the Metropolitan Water District at the outset of the presentation. In that case, the California Supreme Court ruled the common law control test is to be used to decide whether or not a worker should be eligible for benefits under CalPERS. Uh, similarly, for decades, it's been the test for purposes of workers' compensation and other uh, basic California employment laws. And what that test says uh, is that if you direct, have the right to direct and control how someone does the service, then they're your employee. And there's no one factor that's determinative. Your contract can say they're an independent contractor. That's not what the court's going to look at. The court looks at the specific way in which that contract operates on the ground. And so there are many factors that are looked at in making this determination. Uh, in California, the courts use as just a list that identifies various factors. Um, the IRS, I think, has over the years come up with uh, an easier way to or categorize the documents in terms of they look at issues re regarding behavioral control, issues regarding financial control, and then what the intent of the parties is. And so if you think about behavioral control, those, those are things like the schedule, where the work is done, what kind of work uh, is being done, um, the skill that's required for that work. Those go into sort of how the, the behavior of the, of the relationship. For, for the finance people on, on the program, the financial control is going to look at those specific things like how the payments are made, how, is it being paid on an hourly basis, is there a lump sum, um, is there a monthly retainer, how long is that contract um, supposed to go on for? Is it a sort of an indefinite service provider contract? Is it for a specific project or a specific issue? Um, so focusing in on the, the finance aspects of it is another area of, of concern. And then finally, looking at the intent of the parties and you know, what is the expected relationship of that service uh, to the employer. Is that service something that is a regular part of the employer's business? Um, do you have full staffing that usually does this work, but for any, a particular reason, the agency needs extra help, and so you're bringing in an extra inspector when you already have an inspection team, or you're bringing in an extra financial analyst when you already have a whole staff uh, managing your, your finance operations. These are all the factors that get looked at 
And as a lawyer, uh, when you look at multi-factor tests that can be balanced, um, that becomes a scenario where the outcome is never 100% certain because the court has the flexibility to pay more attention to one factor versus another. And over the years, we've had many cases where you know, we've been retained to challenge uh, an audit finding or um, uh, an administrative law d determination that a particular individual was an employee and not an independent contractor. And we go back through and look at all those factors and identify which ones are most significant given the nature of the work at issue and the nature of the employer and, and seek to have those determinations reversed by having a court uh, find that certain factors are more important than others. And of course, we want the factors that favor the client to be the ones that the court would consider. So, And, and the challenge at, from an agency is that no one area has all that information and has to be coordinated all the way from the line, from, from where the work is actually being conducted and those supervisors all the way through HR and to finance. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of some work to put all that together. It, it becomes a very labor-intensive process, absolutely. And so if, if the goal is to have a test that provides flexibility, then the common law test is the one that most employers want. Um, if the test is to provide the broadest coverage and provide most certainty to the person providing the services that they will be considered an employee and not an independent contractor, then this other test, uh, the Martinez test that I had on the last slide, um, that is the broadest test. It basically says it's a suffer permit test, which means if you're providing services that, that benefit the employer, then basically you're an employee. And it's, it'd be pretty hard to express that anyone that's providing a service to an employer would not in some way qualify as an employee under that test, given how general and over broad that it is. And it's intended to be that way. And so that test has been used frequently in the context of labor code provisions where the California Labor uh, Commission wants to make sure that the broadest group of people providing services are going to be covered um, for workers' comp and, you know, all the benefits that flow from treating someone as an employee and not an independent contractor. And so in this case, to go back now, why, all, why does this all matter? Well, it matters because in Dynamex, as you can imagine, <clears throat> the company was arguing that the court should apply the common law control test. And um, the employees were arguing that the court should apply this suffer and permit test. And so the court looked at this situation and decided that the suffer and permit test should apply. And understanding that there really wasn't any basis for figuring out how to apply that test, it came up with one. And that is this Dynamex test, the ABC. And for private sector employers, so for all you finance people who you know, you, you're in and out of the private and the public world and your communications and your meetings, I'm sure, and, and the HR people too, probably. Um, your colleagues on the private sector side, this, this, this case has really um, left employers very concerned because it is a very strict test. 
And the first point that I have here is that the burden is on the employer. So that is a huge deal to say that the employer now has the obligation to establish that the person that they've classified as an independent contractor actually is one. Under all other legal standards, when, when an employee files a claim, it's the employee that has the burden to make the showing. Now the burden's on the employer. So that is it. That is the first big step. Um, the second thing is, is that the test has set up three specific parts to it. And I've got them listed here. The free from control, outside usual course of business, and independent trade, occupation, or business. So what does this mean? Well, the first thing is, is that to properly establish that a worker is an independent contractor, you will see at the end of each of these elements, it says, and, and. That means the employer has to prove that the employee satisfies each of these elements. If any one of those elements is not met, the employee is not properly classified as an independent contractor. So that is another very significant aspect of this test. The burden's on the employer and it is, it is strict. And it's, it's meant to be. This was a designed to be a very difficult test for employers to meet. So we're going to go to a polling question here, and one of the things we're interested in is uh, getting some feedback from you, our audience, about which of the elements of the ABC uh, test uh, are particularly challenging for uh, your agency, uh, so that as uh, Daphne and Deborah uh, comment about these topics, uh, they can <coughs> be focusing in on where you feel the greatest rub point. And while that's going on, uh, Deborah, uh, why don't you share with us uh, just very briefly, you know, what that's like in your agency's context? So where would you land on this question? Uh, well, you know, as government agencies, we love control. So <laughs> really uh, free from control and understanding where the line is, because it's not just a black and white. Um, it's tough because uh, you have to understand it in HR and in finance, but really the employees, the supervisors um, in the field need to be aware of some of this stuff. And so that gets to be a challenge because you don't really have complete control out there at the end of the line in explaining some of these, um, some of these test elements. So I, I think that's one of the more challenging aspects of it, the free from control. And it looks like uh, our audience is agreeing with you there with uh, outside the usual course of business being a, a, a close uh, second. So let, let's dive mm -hmm. into those topics and um, help our audience figure out how to navigate them. Okay. Part A, free from control and direction. So this really is the, the element that uh, is most relevant, I think, to the public employer uh, because it is essentially a repeat of what the Borello test is. And as I mentioned before, the Borello test is what is governing most of the important aspects of, of the public employer's business. And so once again, here we are focusing on the hiring entity's right to control. 
the the most I think the most important consideration when looking at the freedom from control test and I'll get I'll get calls where a client's getting ready to embark on a new uh, a, maybe, maybe let's look at in the sense of a construction uh, program and so uh, a new project is going to go forward maybe there's going to be a new performing arts center built for the city and so the the city is now looking at how is this project going to be managed it's obviously a huge undertaking uh, there are going to be many elements to it and there's going to have to be a significant use of, of outside consulting work and so when figuring out how that project moves forward you know the first question that I always have is how much day-to-day -day input are you going to need in connection with whatever the particular service is um, if the client says that they're they need to have a team of people right in City Hall they have extra space they want to have them there so that there can be day-to-day -day interaction and everyone can be a great team and for efficiency purposes you know then my antennas start going up <laughs> because uh, if you feel that you need to have people close to you and you need to have this day-to-day -day interaction of, on things then I'm very concerned that no matter how it is we we draft the contract and the language we put in there um, your in-house people will not be able to resist the urge to really take over sort of that day-to-day -day control so you need to look at how those relationships are being structured and think and think how much day-to-day -day interaction is needed because you can do a project in multiple there's many different ways to handle that project and I have some hypotheticals uh, you know coming up that we can apply uh, in, in a minute but it's 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 the day-to-day -day control needing to have input I think that's the easiest way to think about to think about that element and and that is okay. the one that so that's the, that's a challenge right so depending on what um, public agencies are hiring somebody to do the easiest is to default to the model that we all know which is the employee is sitting there if it's a cubicle setting here we cleared some space for you before you know it you know all the employees are looking very similar to each other and helping each other out and uh, not even just from the supervisorial relationships but you know we're, we're, we're public sector people we're so nice we like to embrace people into our into our work cultures and they look more and more like employees um, the, the longer it goes is what I've experience absolutely and what happens is especially when you're when you're looking at long-term projects so uh, the Metropolitan Water District I mean these are these are facts that are in the public record so I'm not saying anything that you wouldn't otherwise know um, you know that was a connection with a Diamond Valley Lake pro project that went on for over a decade and there were multiple different forms of con contracting relationships but the ones the claims arose from the people that were brought in house and for efficiency purposes were working um, at Metropolitan Water District headquarters and over time you know they just became they became part of that family and and participate in all the events and and then when you have really good workers everybody wants to use them and so 
the initial contract maybe for $15,000. Well, then another group says, oh, I can really use that person. And so they, and so over time, this person's now been there for 10 years uh, okay. working. And it gets really difficult to try to argue that that particular individual uh, was an independent contractor, you know, as opposed to, to an employee. Conversely, had there been a discussion up front about what services were needed, you can structure the relationships to make it work. It's just a question of it's a definite shift in culture and managers don't like it as much because if they do feel that they're giving up control and they're ultimately responsible for things. So they want to make sure that the work's done properly. But, you know, it's just it's a process. The, the part of the test that causes the most pain for definitely the private sector is this Part B. And Part B basically asks, does the worker perform a function that's directly tied to the heart of the operation? So looking back to Dynamex, Dynamex is a company that is a, it's a, delivery, or it's a delivery company, and they have trucks that go all over the nation delivering the packages and documents. That's the basis of the business. So you can imagine that under Part B, there is no way that the company will pass muster because those truckers, that is the heart of the operation. It's a delivery company. Um, the Supreme Court gave a couple of examples. Uh, for example, if, if you had a bakery and the bakery had a group of people decorating cakes, well, clearly those people that are hired to decorate the cakes, cakes is what the company is all about. So um, they would never be able to qualify as independent contractors under this test, no matter how you structured it. Even if you had, a, you, you, you shipped the cakes off to someone in another location and you had a company that was a cake decorating company and, and did all the decorations for them and then delivered the final product back. Uh, under this test, uh, that would not um, pass muster. Uh, whereas under the Borello test, you could you could theoretically have a situation where you know you've got a, a, a company that bakes cakes, and the various aspects of the cake baking process have been outsourced, and cake decorating could have been one of those functions that got outsourced, and it was done somewhere else outside the direction and control. And an argument could have been made under the common law test that they weren't directing the day-to-day -day work. Uh, these de cake decorators use their own independent discretion on the decoration aspect. Um, what, about, um, what about recreation? Uh, you know, a lot of um, the public sector agencies have recreation departments and you hire a yoga instructor and you hire a this. There's just a plethora of different types of skills and services that they, um, that uh, an independent contractor could provide um, theoretically. How do you, how, what advice do you give under Part B for those types of activities? Well, so when we're looking at, now Part B when it comes to the public sector, this is, this is sort of going to be a, somewhat a little bit of uncharted territory. Um, the first thing I would say about Part B in the public sector is that this is a general test that was adopted in the context of a wage order. California legislature has specifically authorized cities and counties and other public agencies to contract out certain services, financial, economic, uh, legal, accounting, those kinds of things. So to the extent that the services are covered under these statutes, 
then if we were to be challenged in the context of a Dynamex case, I would come back and say, this, this test should not apply to the public employer because there's a more specific statute that specifically allows them to do this work. So it doesn't make sense. You can't just sort of overrule that prior statute by a three-part test that was implemented in a, an entirely different context. So that's sort of the big picture answer to your specific question. Um, looking at specific services, I think those raise other questions. And if you're looking at, uh, because if you were looking at it straight from, is that integral to the, to the agency's work? Well, you have a recreation department and the recreation department mission is to provide recreation services and obviously yoga, uh, swimming, whatever those classes are, those are all, that's why the recreation department exists to provide these services to the public. So um, there would be a, there would be a problem um, under this particular statute. Um, so, so we'd need to be able to distinguish it, number one. And then I think that the more important question would have to be um, looking at it from the, the, the Borello test and the common law test um, to see how those services have been set up and what the nature of those contractual relationships are to make sure that you don't have a basic independent contractor issue separate and apart from the Dynamex issue. And then part C is, is, is pretty much a repeat of, of what the Borello, uh, you know, the common law test looks at in terms of whether or not the work is integral uh, sort of to the, to the business, um, whether or not there's a distinct services being provided, um, you know, how, how is that particular independent contractor operating outside of the services being provided to you? So in the context of an accountant, does that accountant have an independent firm and is providing services to multiple different agencies? Or is this accountant, you know, the only client that the accountant's providing services for is your city, and by the way, that accountant used to be uh, your finance director or uh, providing similar services in-house uh, before the person retired, for example. So those are things you'd want to look at with Part C. Uh, so this is this is interesting because when the, when the case first when Dynamex first came out, there were a lot of questions about impact and scope, uh, and even since the, the decision came out and May, uh, there's been a number of decisions that are a little have been helpful in terms of limiting the scope. Um, the first thing I'd always said to, to clients that called was, you know, this decision should only apply to the wage orders. When I looked at the case and looked at the rationale and looked at the focus of what the court was saying, it seemed to me pretty straightforward that it was dealing with wage orders, labor code provisions. And so to the extent that uh, was this going to change the test for CalPERS benefits? I mean, my my opinion was no, it's limited. And you know, since that uh, Dynamex came out, we've got one appellate court uh, decision that that says exactly that that the case is limited to the wage order context. And the Garcia case uh, refused to apply the application of this ABC test beyond wage orders. The other uh, case that came out, which is, which is helpful uh, in increasing the options that employers have for contracting services, is the, is the Curry case. 
And um, that case was a situation involving what we call joint employment, where you have individuals, workers that would be employees of, of two entities. So for example, um, in this case, you had Shell Corporation, and then you have the independent operator uh, gas stations that are serving Shell gas. Uh, and the issue there was whether or not whether or not um, the the test would apply to the workers providing services at the gas station so that they could also be considered employees of, of Shell. Uh, and in looking at that scenario, the court came back and said, you know, the, the ABC test is not going to apply in the joint employment situation. Why? Well, labor code claims we're concerned about, we just want to make sure that these workers are getting paid by somebody and that the workers' comp benefits are being covered by somebody. And in the joint employment context, that's covered. One of the employers is providing that service. And so we don't need to extend the ABC test to joint employment. And so that is helpful to the extent that, uh, uh, let's say, a city is looking at um, contracting with an organization that is providing a service and, and you have a joint point relationship with, with that agency. So when you hire temps, for example, uh, you bring in someone to backfill for uh, an administrative person on leave. Well, when that person comes in and sits in the desk of the person that's on leave, they're going to be subject to the direction and control of, of your agency. At the same time, they're on the payroll and getting all their benefits and all the basic elements of their compensation covered by the temp agency. So there's a joint employment relationship there. Uh, in that context, the ABC test doesn't apply. So those are two decisions that, that help limit the scope. And this is, this is sort of more, more from the legal perspective. Um, so I'm not going to get into the, the minutia of the tests. I just think that for, from your perspective, if it comes up, um, someone comes up to you and says, oh, we're really worried with this ABC test. Is this going to change the way we're evaluating our employees for purposes of CalPERS membership? You can come back and say, well, no, at this point, um, that's limited to wage orders. And so we're not going to have to revamp necessarily how we're evaluating our employees for purposes of PERS. And the reason being because we're exempt from the wage orders. Correct. Well, and then PERS is not it's not a wage order case. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a government code. The, the, the CalPERS benefits are provided under the government code, not under the labor code. All right. So that's a lot of legal legalese <laughs> I just went through with all of you. Uh, and you're all thinking, well, but really, how does this work? <laughs> what does this really mean for us? And so um, I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about uh, some hypotheticals, and in particular, looking at some cases that I think most of you uh, have to struggle with uh, on a regular basis. So very often, public agencies uh, need help when they're embarking on a major capital program. And uh, one aspect of a capital program for construction 
would be making sure that you have sufficient uh, inspectors to conduct all the inspections that are necessary to keep the project moving forward. And if you have a really big project, uh, the chances are that the in-house team you have is not going to be sufficient um, or it's not going to be able to keep up with the demand uh, to keep the project moving forward. And so there's consideration about how are we going to uh, staff the construction project inspection element of the project. So thinking about that, uh, you're going to be talking with your public works director and um, there'll be lots of options presented for how this can go forward. Um, oftentimes, the decision would be made to issue an RFP and decide that for the construction of the new performing arts center, we're going to contract out the entire function of project inspection. Maybe you're going to contract out the entire function of project manager, management and leave that project management firm with the responsibility to also subcontract for project inspection. The bottom line is if you decide for that project to contract out the function of inspection and you enter into a relationship with a company that's going to provide those functions, then you are going to have been, you're going to be able to establish the independent contractor relationship because uh, you're not going to be exercising the day-to-day -day control over how that inspection process will take place. And the inspectors that will be doing the job, um, they will have a supervisor that the company has provided and their day-to-day -day assignments and all the work that they're doing is going to be governed by uh, the company. The company in turn is going to have to have a representative that will be interfacing with the city and the project engineer, the public works department to make sure that all the uh, specific requirements of the agency are met. But that one piece, the agency is allowed to have general oversight, so that's not going to destroy the relationship as long as everybody who's doing the work uh, is, is independent in how they're conducting that work. So let's that's say one example. Let's say it looks good on paper, but um, if you were out on the job site, you actually see one of your employees, a supervisor, directing the, um, the contract employee and assigning the jobs for the day or that sort of thing. Even though your paperwork looks good and you had your RFP and you set it up well, does that create a problem, um, Daphne? Well, absolutely. I mean, you have to. If the decision is made to contract out the work, then it needs to be structured in a way that those individuals are operating independently. And that's when you go back to the initial discussion about how you're going to staff this, that question is, well, what, what degree of control do you need over the day-to-day -day work? The other option would be, you because, because if you've contracted out, but really you've got your own person in the field that's directing everybody, then you're going to have this common law relationship. You know, alternatively, you could have a situation where um, you're not contracting out the whole function. You just need a few people, extra staffing. And so there are many agencies out there that can offer the entire service, but they also have lots of individuals who can they can supply to you 
who have lots of ex experience. They're probably retirees from a similar agency and they're happy to come in and do that work for you. In which case, you'll just ha you'll have, uh, you contract with this third party and um, the third party will be the employer for purposes of compensation and payroll. And then the individual is going to come in and provide the services under the direction and control of your own staff. Now, that is on the face of it, potentially a good solution but the, as I'm, we'll talk about in a little bit, little bit later, that's going to raise issues. If that person is under control of your team, then they're going to be your common law employee too. And that's going to impact issues with respect to PERS and all the other elements of employment that are governed by the common law relationship. So it doesn't 100% solve the, the situation there. Uh, and then as far as the, AB the ABC test goes, um, You'd, you'd be looking at the same. You'd look at looking at the same three aspects. I don't think it's going to be a huge issue for purposes of um, the, the second part of that test we talked about, um, integral, because it's a specific project. It's a unique project. Um, there's still the opportunity to to contract out services. There's statutory rights to do that. So I wouldn't be as concerned under the ABC test. But the real thing, the real issue is. Are you having individual people in the field who are going to be under direction and control of your staff? Or are you going to be able to contract out that function and be comfortable that the only control you're going to have is through the relationship, whoever, whoever that project manager is designated by the company. You know, they will interface with the city and the engineer and the, and the, and the public works director. Um, but for purposes of day-to-day, -day, they're the ones that are going to be directing the work. And, you know, it, 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 goes, it, it, it depends on the nature of the work. And I've had cases where we've been able to win <laughs> arguments over whether or not these construction project inspectors are independent contractors. And we've also had cases where we've had to acknowledge that they were common law employees for the same employer. They just had multiple different inspectors with multiple different arrangements. And it really is how you're doing the work in the field. And it gets to be a challenge because even if your finance department knows their stuff inside and out and you've got this, this educated HR department and they know it, not necessarily the public works supervisor that's on out in the field knows any of this. And it, it makes it um, tough to um, navigate without everybody in the whole chain understanding what the implications are. It makes it a real challenge. Correct. Uh, and so the project manager is, is, is somewhat similar to the construction inspector, except I, I included this one because the project manager is coming in at, sort of at, at the higher level because with, with respect to that construction project um, or, or any kind of project, you could decide to bring in an outside firm to be responsible for overall project management uh, of, the, of the program. And then in addition to the project manager, then there's all these other consulting firms that are providing many different services. And the project manager is actually managing all of these consultants. So you'll have uh, a company like Parsons that's doing the project management, and then you're going to have an environmental consulting firm, you're gonna have your project inspection firm, 
Um, I mean, there's multiple different consulting services that become contracted for in support of the overall program. And then you have, you have the project manager that, that, that's overseeing all that work. Um, and so the project manager, I've, I've seen challenges there too. Uh, and, and the place where I think for cities and public agencies where it could create the most risk is when you have uh, a retiree uh, brought back to oversee a project. And so what, what, what happens is you'll have, I mean, a case like a, a police chief. So a police chief retires. And uh, before the retirement, the city was involved in a huge initiative uh, to upgrade security, to engage in uh, regional plans for uh, public safety, and just a lot of high-level projects that were in the works. And this police chief, before he or she retired, was a key driving force behind this program. And now the, the police chief has retired and the city is figuring that how can we possibly move forward with this without the police chief. And so the idea would be to have the police chief come back and basically oversee this initiative while uh, to see it through to fruition. And from my point of view, this is one of the, the trickiest questions because on the one hand, um, the police chief was working on this as a police chief. <laughs> and it is integral to the public safety plan of the city. And the police chief in this role when, when he or she was employed is interconnected with council and with department heads and everybody, the outside consultants, other agencies, you know, sitting on these, in these meetings um, for a long time. And now the person's retired and they're gonna continue to do this work. So when we probe whether or not this is going to create an issue, the client will come back and say, but, but she's not serving as a police chief anymore. She's just doing this special project, right? This is one aspect of what he or she did as a police chief. That's true. And we're not going to be directing the day-to-day -day work because you know, she's going to have responsibility for this initiative and we'll have discretion and it's not going to be working at the city, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I say is, number one, this is a huge risk to your retired police chief. If we get this wrong five, in five years' time, uh, there's an audit. This police chief will lose her retirement. She'll be reinstated and she'll have to pay back every dollar she received from PERS. And by the way, she's going to have to make the contributions she didn't make and you're going to have to make the ones you didn't make. Okay, so these are, this is a big issue if you get it wrong. Because the work is so interconnected with public safety and what she was doing, I, as an outside counsel, would not feel comfortable giving an opinion on that because I think that 
HERS in particular could look at it either way. They could mm -hmm. say, this is a specialized project. We understand that the independent contractor arrangement works. Or it could say, this is so interconnected with what the overall city's public safety plan is. She's still sitting on all these meetings. She has to still taking direction from council because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the directions coming from council. Oh, sorry, I think I just hit my, something happened there. Um, so it, it's a gray area. And when those kinds of circumstances arise, I always recommend that we look at the, have the contract reviewed um, by, in this case, by PERS to make sure because that is a very close, um, a very close call. Conversely, you have a situation where it's an entirely different project. It's um, maybe maybe the maybe the city is looking at uh, implementing a body worn camera program, and they need an expert to come in and advise on what are you know what are the best vendors for purchasing body worn cameras. What what kinds of considerations um, should we be looking at in, in implementing that kind of program? Um, negotiating for for the terms of of how that camera is going to work. That's a specific project, and this retired chief would have experience on concerns, you know, that that the the public safety officers would have if you're going to implement some kind of program, and could probably provide you know, limited strategic um, consulting services to the city while it is considering options for embarking on a, on a specific uh, program. Um, and at that point, perhaps that chief is now operating as an independent contractor and providing different consulting services on public safety issues. And that might be an example that, that could pass muster. And Don, I apologize. It looks like I've the slides have gone backwards, and I don't have no, they're, control. they're going forwards. Um, the, um, uh, I, I think you know, you're getting into the topics that are really uh, some of the ones that we saw a lot of interest from in our uh, prior polling. So I think if you can move fairly quickly on to the uh, retirement topic, uh, I think that would be good because I think that's where a lot of these uh, items will lodge. And in fact, your current example was an illustration of that. And I want to be sure that all the good material that you have you know, we can get covered in our remaining time. Right, and so I'm just trying to move the slide forward. Oh, I'm seeing, okay. My apologies. Okay. Um, so the point of that hypothetical was just to give you sort of big picture uh, input in terms of the different types of uh, considerations when you are looking at contracting for services and the different options that are available to you. So I stand corrected, Don. You're right. The next slide was the unresolved issues. And, and like I'd said earlier, um, the Dynamex case only applies in the aspect of the wage orders. And um, we weren't sure whether everybody on this call would actually know what a wage order is, because in finance, that's not something that you're specifically going to deal with. Uh, so we just you know, put out uh, an example of what the wage order looks like. In the context of public agencies, most the most likely wage order that would be relevant to you would be wage order four, 
because it covers um, folks that are serving in administrative and professional technical um, occupations. And the most important thing to know about the wage order four is that um, most aspects of wage order four do not apply to the public sector. Um, the exempt, non-exempt do, but the uh, issues about uh, meal and rest breaks, um, the ones that cause a lot of challenges for the private sector employers, um, they, they do not apply. Okay. So, Deborah, I know you you were going to uh, tee up a couple things about the whole retirement uh, context, and, and of course, both of you have been getting into that already with some of your illustrations and examples, and we've got a bunch of questions that have also come in, so I want to be sure we're able to move through the rest of the material and have time for the questions and, and some key points here, but do you have a, a quick mm -hmm. comment about this retirement topic and things that you want to alert your finance colleagues uh, to think about? Well, it's a big topic in all government agencies right now. We're in the middle of a of a, a little bit of a um, shortage on uh, workers, and we have the baby boomers who retired. They were about 80 million strong. We've got uh, the Gen Xers. I think that I think that uh, generation somewhere around 55 million, and we're waiting for millennials to come up to speed at 88 million. So right now we're really in a crunch for who knows how to do the work. So we're seeing a lot of retirees either coming back directly to work for the agencies they retired from or for um, going into these um, other agencies that are collecting the talent um, outside uh, agencies uh, consultant, as consultants and coming back to different agencies, whether it's their own or elsewhere. But there is a big wave of this. So I think that this is touching all of us in some way, and for many of us, um, quite a bit. So uh, I do see this as something that's not going to go away anytime soon until we kind of get over this this crunch of this mass exodus from talent out of the public sector uh, employment. Okay. Well, right. let's, let's get a quick update here from uh, Daphne about just the PERS context and then jump into these uh, particular scenarios. Sure. So like I said, when when the Dynamex came, case came out and people asked me about the impact of it, I, I said really the most important thing we need to think about is, is, is the PERS context because it returns the focus uh, to the, the PERS issue. And so um, as everyone knows, there's compulsory membership uh, for, for CalPERS for any employee. And under the CalPERS statute, an employee is considered uh, an employee if they qualify under the common law, um, as well as uh, being hired by the by the agency. And so, Deborah, you had mentioned that the determination of worker classification is done in your office, and I'm always happy to hear that the organization has brought HR into the mix because um, a lot of times when you're dealing with contracts, it goes through finance because the individual departments have their contracting authority and they're just executing agreements. And so a lot of times um, those agreements do not cross HR's desk. And, it, and because of this issue with PERS, um, you, you're missing the opportunity to have 
your HR people um, take a look at that contract and you know do the contractor determination uh, to, to make sure that they're going to meet the criteria. Uh, also to find out whether or not they're, they've been a, a CalPERS, uh, whether they are a member of CalPERS because um, whether they're coming in as an independent contractor or as a employee of a third party agency, um, you're gonna wanna know if there's, if there's a prior membership so that that can be taken into account as the analysis is being done. And so as I said, it's that common law standard uh, that came about as a result of, of the Metropolitan Water District case. And for those of you, I, I think the finance people probably do get copies of the CalPERS circular letters. I know the HR people definitely do. And uh, you know, CalPERS has been issuing circular letters and materials that can help uh, the process of determining whether or not an, an employee, uh, an individual meets the, the criteria. Um, and so if you go on to the CalPERS website, um, you can access quite a few materials that, that didn't used to be available uh, in the pre-Cargill days. Most of the focus that uh, we created for the remainder of this program uh, is on retirees. So you're going to see that I have more slides on retirees than, than anything else. Um, and that is because, as Deborah said, um, you know, we see so many of our clients struggling with succession planning and figuring out how to get the job done. And, you know, people retire, you know, we're young and have lots of desire to keep working and, and have lots of experience to offer. And so there's just a huge pool of retirees who are ready and willing and able to provide services to your agencies. And so when you're looking at a retiree working after employment, you know, there are various options on how um, that retiree could provide services. And so I've listed them out here, you know, as an independent contractor, as an employee of a third party firm, um, such as one of the companies that Deborah mentioned. I mean, there are a number of consulting firms that basically are dedicated to supplying retirees uh, to public agencies. I mean, that is the, their mandate and their mission and their expertise that they offer. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there's also the opportunity for the individual to work as a retired annuitant uh, or, or reinstatement as a full-time employee, which realistically isn't an option that most retirees want to to engage. So one of the things we want to look at is which of these uh, situations uh, of working after retirement uh, are of most concern uh, to you uh, and to your agency. So if you click off as many as are relevant, we'll be targeting the remainder of the time on things that are of particular concern to you and things that you'd like to be sure get, get addressed. All these are probably important but we want to be uh, focusing the time and attention here. While that's happening, we're getting some uh, a number of questions uh, that are coming in about a variety of topics, and let me just see if I can uh, knock off one of those uh, fairly quickly here. Um, the, um, is there a, a rule of thumb for a time frame, such as more than one year uh, or approximately, um, you, you know, more, uh, 
nine months or whatever when when you hire uh, an individual through a temporary contracting agency does that help you get um, you know some reasonableness around these topics uh, anything that's useful there that that could be kind of some guidance for our um, finance folks and HR professionals out there grappling with this and trying to just figure out, okay, when does this become material versus not? Okay, well, as far as the employee of a third-party staffing firm, that scenario is one that involves joint employment because the individual is being controlled by the public agency and the day-to-day -day work and is on the payroll of a third party. So in that context, the, the employee is a common law employee of your agency, and so under PERS is eligible for enrollment. To figure out how long you can keep that particular worker without having a PERS issue, you have to look to the rules that talk about when an individual needs to be enrolled. This isn't a retiree now, this is just a, a regular person. And under CalPERS rules, you have to enroll either immediately upon employment, if that employment is expected to uh, last more than 1,000 hours, or if you're looking at a limited term, they have to be enrolled after 1,000 hours of work. Um, if you're talking about a retiree, then um, you're governed by the rules that limit retire, retire annuitant work, and that's 960 hours in a fiscal year. So this okay. slide just generally lists out what the, um, the statutory requirements are and restrictions on working after employment. But and in terms of in terms of how long are, how long can they be? And let's say they're staying under 920 or 960 hours, but they come back year after year after year working under 960 hours. My my understanding is there's no defined time of okay after year one you've got to cut them cut them loose or else they're going to be permanent. There's not a um, definitive amount of time um, for them to be there. Okay. I for some reason, these slides are not moving forward. Can you help okay. me move that forward, Don? Yes. Thank you. Which one would you like to move forward okay. to? Okay, I just because there we have the slide that talks about restrictions. Yeah, if you want to jump to that one. Which one would you like to go to? It is going to be. A work of limited duration, which is slide 37. Okay. We'll move on to that one. Okay. So there are, well, number one, uh, Deborah, the, there have been amendments to the requirements and regulations governing retired annuitants in recent years. And so in prior years, uh, there was less restriction on this notion of Okay, the 960 hours in the fiscal year has always been there. And um, so agencies could set it up that you could structure it so that you stay under the 960 hours for the fiscal year and then let some time go by and, and continue to use 
um, that particular person for services. And, and, and that was permissible in terms of the way the statute was structured previously. Um, now there's more restrictions on how the retired annuitant appointments work. And you've got um, two different ways of um, two different statutes that you can trigger for your retired annuitant. And you've got the work of limited duration, and that's the, the section that I've just pulled up here. Um, and like you said, it's, it's, it's not for an indefinite period of time. The statute doesn't act specifically say um, right. how long it can go. But what it does say is that it, it has to be work of a limited duration. So you right. can't just have the same person come back year after year after year doing the same job. Whereas in the past, I think technically um, that that would work. And actually, uh, in, in the cargo case, there was a group of, of employees that sort of kept coming back over and over again. And at, the, and at that time, there wasn't really um, too much limitation on that. But now I think that PERS looks at this and they want to see that the retired annuitant's employment is connected with some specific kind of project that you can verify is actually of limited duration and not and not ongoing. And I think that's the one that may cause the most heartburn for people because this is a standard practice, I think, statewide in terms of the use of, of retired retired annuitants. Can you move the slide forward to the next one, Don? The other way, the other common um, use for retired annuitants, and this is uh, one that's governed by a different statutory section, uh, is for an interim appointment. And this has been an option in the past. Um, the thing that is more restrictive now than, than it used to be is that um, PERS is pretty rigid on the use of this provision. So if you're using it, while you're filling a vacant position, you can do that. But there needs to be a pending recruitment uh, okay. for that position. And you can only use the retired annuitant for that position. So you can't have someone come in while you're recruiting for your assistant planning director and then now you've got your planning director and then you've got a finance director. You, you, you can't be using the same person to cover multiple um, multiple recruitments. There's just the one appointment. And they also want to be clear about how long this process is going to last. So because it can take a while to fill a position and, and, and PERS does understand that. Um, but they don't want this to be a situation where it's a recruitment that's sort of a never ending process and you've got this retired annuitant providing services for many years before the recruitment is, is complete. Uh, and so I've already made reference to the 960 hours. And so <clears throat> going back to my comment about the importance of having HR involved in your uh, independent contractor analysis is that if you've got someone coming in as a retired annuitant, and as an independent contractor, under normal circumstances, if, if the person actually passes muster and you're able to make that work, um, the 960 hours wouldn't be an issue. But because it is so difficult, I think, to have a retired annuitant 
classified as an independent contractor because they're usually doing pretty much the same service. Um, in cases that are close calls, uh, I always advise the client to track those hours as well um, and to make sure that the services are staying under that 960 hour mark so that if there is an issue, the, the person hasn't run afoul of the retired annuitant and you're, you sort of have to go back and, and fix things. But at least nothing, nothing's happened in terms of putting the retirement at risk because under the statute, they haven't exceeded the 960 hours in a fiscal year. So it's, it's somewhat of a safeguard. Okay, where would you like to go next in our remaining time here? Okay, so <clears throat> the next few slides, uh, Don, just they're really just for people's reference in terms of common areas that there are issues. So we've talked about the restriction on length of employment. Um, something that that can that can get people run run afoul of is is the comparable compensation issue and the limitations on what uh, an, a, a consultant can be paid through the retired annuitant provisions. Um, and the other thing are limited restrictions on benefits. So, you know, oftentimes um, the employees were used to having certain benefits when they were, when they were on staff and, and they're looking at maybe offering similar benefits uh, through, the, through the retired annuitant um, provisions, but a retiree cannot receive any benefit <laughs> other than other than compensation. So so that's a big issue that I see a lot of times in, in these arrangements. So for the remaining time, I think we can talk about the uh, mitigating the risk and um, slide 47 and 48 focus on those aspects. Um, <clears throat> So whether, no matter what kind of relationship you're considering, I think the most important thing to start out with is identifying um, what the specific expertise is that this individual is going to be providing. Um, can you identify a specific expertise and um, explain why it is that expertise is needed? Then the second thing is to look at the work and the type of work that's being performed, and is it related to a specific need, a specific time frame, or a specific project? Um, if you can identify specific expertise, a time frame, and a project, then you are in a situation where I think you can realistically be considering the independent contractor option. If you're not able to identify any of these three things, you're all, I think you're in a situation where you're looking at a risk and you wanna start considering your other options like contracting with a third party company, contracting out the service altogether. If you're looking at a retiree, bringing them in as a retired annuitant and making sure that you're complying with those provisions. Um, if you've got yourself in the independent contractor box, then you need to make sure both contractually and on the ground, meaning the, the people who are responsible in the, at the agency for the work that is being contracted for, are they comfortable 
with the notion that these contractors have to operate independently and they cannot be under the day-to-day direction and control of your, of your staff. Um, because if they're not comfortable with that, then once again, you're outside the realm of being able to legitimately and safely engage an independent contractor. And then you have to have some mechanism in place to make sure that the performance that's ongoing actually matches what everyone understood the contract terms to be. Uh, and so frequently, you know, conducting an internal and formal audit, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we'll have a client say, can you just come in and, you know, do an informal review of our contracting process? And that's a good way to get from a, you know, an overall check in terms of what kind of work is your agency engaged in? You know, run the list of the 1099s, get a list of your retired annuitants, find out what the contracts are that you have with outside temp firms and, and what kind of work are they providing? You know, going through that process and making sure that you understand exactly what kinds of services are being provided to your agency. And then when it comes to these retirees, I know that people, um, you know, hers is the 800-pound gorilla and, you know, lots of different experiences that we have with the agency, um, but they do now have an independent contractor determination unit. And if you're looking at a retiree and you have a, a contract potentially for services that has any relationship to the work that retiree did when they were employed by your agency, I would have PERS review the contract. It is too big a risk. It's just such a big risk. Um, and so this last, uh, you know, sort of end up with, um, you know, having that checklist, making sure that your managers and contract, your managers are trained on how to review the contract. Um, you know, we use a, there's a there's checklist that you can get um, from, CalPERS now. CalPERS has published the list that they use. So I used to have my own that I created, but now I always refer back to, to that list to make sure that we're complying with, with the factors that CalPERS cares about. Um, but having that initial assessment done, having the consultant and the manager involved sign off on that form, making sure that they're both on board, that this is the nature of the relationship, they understand the importance of complying with the terms of the contract, and, um, you know, that is something that makes people take, take it a little bit more seriously when they actually have to sign off uh, on the bottom line that what they've represented to be the relationship actually is. And then, like I said, following up with these routine audits can be really helpful in making sure that you're staying on track. Great. Well, let, let's do a polling uh, question here about which of these areas that uh, Daphne just highlighted are ones that you would like to give some more attention to in your agency uh, to make sure that your systems are working effectively. And while that's happening, uh, Deborah, I wanna turn to you for a moment and, um, and ask you if you could share some of your perspectives about what you'd like your colleagues, uh, especially your finance colleagues, to take away from today's discussion in terms of you know, some key things that would help them in navigating this area. There's a lot of legal legal issues here, a lot of different things, but, you know, what's your big picture takeaway that could help your colleagues? Well, that, they, that they're just aware of these issues in terms of independent contractors and particularly hiring um, annuitants back, whether through a third party or directly, 
and that it's a team sport. So they're not going to be able to do it on their own. The HR department can't do it on its own and the hiring department can't do it on its own. And so we all need to get together to have the discussion. So it's on everybody's radar screen to, to force the conversation to make sure we're not putting annuitants at risk, that we're not putting the agency at risk. Um, there's no one department or one profession that's going to be able to do it uh, well on their own. So get get together with your own colleagues in your own organizations and your HR departments and your hiring departments and have this conversation so that you understand what's actually out there in your agencies uh, so that you can navigate it. That's great. We can see from the polling results here that the um, items that Daphne was highlighting as areas that uh, people need to give attention to uh, determining the employee versus independent contractor relationship. Uh, all of them were ones that people wanted to be giving more attention to in their efforts. So certainly uh, your participation in today's session has been rewarded by finding things that you can do to make a difference with you and your team in uh, doing this effectively. So let's just, uh, we're, we're coming to the close here and we've got another polling question we need to cover. So, um, well, Let just, me just say this: as far as as far as the last two slides, the intent there was to uh, CalPERS membership determinations. Um, these are the key areas of uh, employment and staffing that your agencies are most likely using. So this is just if you, when you when you're doing your internal review, you want to make sure that you're looking at all of these relationships. And then the final slide reminds you that. Uh, you have to enroll all temporary and part-time employees who are already CalPERS members. So uh, if you're using third-party uh, arrangements or you're bringing in um, employees on a temporary basis, you need to be aware of what their prior PERS status is and to remember that anyone who is eligible for PERS membership has to be enrolled um, within 1,000 hours of working in a fiscal year. So monitoring the time of people when you bring them in is really important. And those are areas that we have seen uh, that have created issues. And so a lot of agencies who use temporary workers now limit their service to a thousand hours so that they don't have to worry about the common law implications. Okay. Well, we want to hit uh, some post-webinar discussion questions. The most important thing out of today's webinar is what are you going to do with this information and how are you going to apply it and where are your vulnerabilities and opportunities to help your agency mitigate its risks more effectively. So uh, we turn this to you and hope that you'll take a few minutes after this discussion while it's fresh in your mind uh, to be thinking about what you uh, need to do and want to do in order to accomplish this effectively. Uh, we do have contacts uh, for, with our presenters from today. Uh, so they have been very kind in uh, helping and, and supporting the, your efforts with their presentation. Uh, we have a final polling question, which is most importantly, you know, what do you want to take away from this? What uh, what was the value here, and how do you want to uh, recognize and confirm that value for uh, yourself and your organization? Uh, want to be sure that you have that in hand. Um, and we'll be showing a slide here at the end with where the resource materials are. Um, I think uh, there's a question that came up about is there a sample checklist posted on the CSMFO website? If I heard you right, uh, Daphne, you're really referring people use the CalPERS checklist. It's uh, available and uh, now sort of the standard uh, reference point. Is that is that fair on that one? Right. Well, like I said, I I've, I've always refer to the CalPERS um, 
checklist, I would be happy to you know, provide provide a copy of that. Um, you know, we see a lot of audit checklists, and so I try to track how how CalPERS has has changed um, th their checklist with respect to the independent contractor determinations. There's a standard um, list that CalPERS of, of information that CalPERS wants agencies to provide when they're doing their review. So I always think that that's a good reference point because it's good to know what CalPERS is looking at. Um, for example, org charts are something CalPERS always wants. So you really don't want to see an independent contractor show up on an org chart. <laughs> um, that's a pretty good trigger to question whether or not that person's an independent contractor or, or an employee, for example. Ah, super, great, 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 quick uh, kernel of advice there. Um, all right, we can see from the uh, response from the attendees that the um, webinar hit its marks on all the things that we were hoping would be of value to the uh, membership uh, from today's session. So uh, we're uh, very grateful for uh, all the work that went into this and everyone's participation in the session. There are resources for the coaching program that are available. We do encourage you to take a few minutes to do the follow-up survey. We're eager to get your ideas about uh, topics for the webinars in uh, 2019, uh, which is just around the corner. So we encourage you to uh, let us know what uh, is of interest to you and uh, welcome your participation along those lines. And so let me just uh, close by thanking uh, very much Daphne Anate uh, for her presentation today and getting us through the ins and outs of the legal aspects here and doing that with such a plum, uh, especially in recovery from uh, your fires and everything else. Glad that you've uh, survived so well and uh, uh, hope you have a chance to rest over the holidays uh, from all that uh, ordeal. And, and Deborah Gill, it was a delight to have you uh, share your perspectives uh, on this uh, from uh, uh, a co-worker's point of view, if you will, with your finance professionals. And thank you so much for all that you added to this. And we thank you all out in the audience for your participation today and for all that you do in uh, helping local governments address their financing issues and to do that effectively and, and hope that you have wonderful holidays and that uh, 2019 will be a great year for you, your career, and the agency and the community that you serve. So. Wish you all the best, and this is Don Maurice right. on behalf of the CSMFO Coaching Program, uh, thanking you for your participation. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye.